that was really, I think this is true for everybody. You have a moment that kicks you off the train that you're taught to be on. And then all of a sudden, you know, my friend Matt said this to me once, I feel like I'm just standing on the platform watching the train go by and all these people just gathered in it, not asking questions or thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's a moment truly of awakening is when you just start to ask why and what am I here for? Why am I choosing these things? Why do I stay in perpetual states of suffering? Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots we make in order to keep moving forward. As I evolve and expand as a person and a podcast host, I have learned that creating a safe space is nearly impossible. I don't know what topics or stories may trigger my listeners, but I hold space with love and intention and honor the bravery that it takes not only to share, but to listen to the stories of others. Thank you so much for being here. I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging that I am recording from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the interior Salish people, in particular, the Sinaiaxt, on whose territory I work and live. Mark Groves is my guest today. Mark Groves is a human connection specialist, founder of Create the Love, Create the Love Cards, and Mind. In other words, he's a speaker, a writer, motivator, creator, and collaborator. Mark's work bridges the academic and the human, inviting people to explore the good, the bad, the downright ugly, and the beautiful sides of connection. His purpose is to empower individuals to step into their power, transform the ways that they relate to themselves and others, and create authentic change. In addition to all that, Mark Groves has been a dream guest of mine for years, and I am honored to have him with me today. We talk about harnessing our sensitivities in order to build boundaries and then use them as our own superpowers. Mark shares his perspectives on death in more ways than just the physical and how this can look in relationships. You'll also hear about relationships and self-worth, relationship narratives, stepping into heartbreak with intention, and assessing a relational past. As always, we jump into the safe haven with a question about some of Mark's biggest life pivots. Some of my biggest life pivots, they've all been... Mm, they've almost all been relational or relational in the context of death, <laughs> like mm-hmm. fearing death or nearing death. That's happened a few times. And, and, you know, ironically, even the relational pivots were deaths, you know, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. they were the endings of relationships either by my choice or not, which is really interesting. I mean, I mean, really that's ultimately why I saw my relationship ending in hindsight when I was 27, I saw that as being actually the gateway to everything, Mm. the gateway to transformation, to finding myself, to birthing myself, to reclaiming myself. So yeah, I think darkest moments, yeah, they'd be relational or mortality (laughs) related. Mm -hmm. So backing up even, I mean, I've listened to so many of your podcasts and I've been following for so long that I know that even as a kid, when you were talking about early teens and being the chubby kid and trying to navigate your own identity and addiction to sugar. We could go in so many different directions, but I really wanted to talk about a nickname that you had as a kid, the sensitor. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think being kind of picked on or ostracized in a way for being sensitive, it's so ironic where you're at now. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. I think a lot of the things that I was shamed for the most are actually have 
being cultivated into superpowers, mm. you know, in a lot of ways, um, in that they're like hyper now, um, in a lot of ways, like the things that we do to protect ourselves as kids, you know, like our sensitivity, for example, we might shut off access to that in the rest of our lives, but when we actually harness it, it's such a gift. I mean, what a gift for people who are overtly sensitive to build boundaries around their sensitivity. And now it's used as a power, not a wound, you know, not an access point to our triggers and our suffering, which of course, all of those are invitations to heal them. So my nickname sensitor actually came from my brother and it was just due to my sensitive nature. I probably, I don't remember literally, but probably due to, you know, being reactive to him or, uh, crying easily. I, I don't really remember that, but that's, mm. it's probably correlated <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> so again, cause I've listened to so many of your pods. I'm like, is this the brother that can just like fart and grow a beard? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. His beard is insane. <laughs> he had a beard in grade nine. It was in, uh, it's wild. Be like, oh, I like you to a girl. And they'd be like, oh, I like your brother. He's oh. a man. I'm like, yeah, it's fair, actually. It's totally fair. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. I also, I'm really curious about when you talk about relationships and you talk about endings and just the death of, whether it's actual physical death or the death of an identity in some way, I really like how you're able to articulate that, you know, when we talk about marriage, until death do us part, that there's so much death in our lives that doesn't have to do with the physical death and dying. Are you able to just kind of share your perspectives on that? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the current circumstances really point to our aversion to mortality. And I was listening to Charles Eisenstein the other day, and he was saying that really it depends on how we measure a life. Do we measure it based on a beautiful life or a long life? And some of us are willing to trade those things. And I thought that's true and, and no shame in either direction. But I thought about it because he asked this question, like, would you be willing to have it so children were not allowed to play and be outside in order to save your own life right now. Hmm. And I thought, what an interesting perspective to think of the trade-off we're asking for. And of course, there's no wrong answer to that. You know, I don't want to project any sort of morality or idea of what's right there. I think our inability to turn towards death and understand it as a normal process of life is also why we have an inability to turn towards endings in general. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that can be the ending of a relationship because also that, I mean, even the ending of a relationship is so stacked with what it means about us, our belonging within a community, our, it's so correlated to shame, our relational status is correlated to our self-worth. I mean, so many things have to unfold when you explore the ending of a relationship. And most of them are bullshit rules that we've been taught and in a lot of ways, those are created from an evolutionary perspective to keep us in relationship, to keep us, you know, I would say, for the most part, trapped. You know, and you think about it, it's like if you're getting married to someone or just entering relationship with someone, should that not be a birthplace to all of you? Like, should that not be the birthplace to you discovering self-expression, you learning how to heal things that you never have, you being willing to explore in your own relational deficits? your communication challenges, but in sort of the narrative that we've created, and I certainly experienced this when I was engaged the first time in my life, is that people would say to me, you know, when I was like, I'm terrified, mm. like I feel really anxious. And people would say, you're just afraid of commitment. And, you know, there's this sort of 
thought that we like, you know, we call our partners the ball and chain and mm. things like that. Mm -hmm. This idea that we are imprisoned or we have to give up things to enter a relationship. And while that's certainly true from an identity perspective, when you enter any relationship, you are no longer, your identity is no longer single. So there's a death there. Mm -hmm. When you go from being um, dating to being married, there's change in identity. When you go from being a couple to having a first child, you're again, there's a death of the identity as a couple. But when I think about relationship now, and I didn't think about this when I was younger, uh, I really see it as like, it is if turned towards with the energetic of curiosity and mutual desire to honor what is sacred there, you know, and, and sacred being that being the motivation for me to want to heal the shit I'm not good at, you know, for me, my defensiveness or my reactivity or that I leave the room or hang up when I'm upset or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that we're overtly aggressive or whatever it might be mm -hmm. that this can be this like a beautiful space that matters enough to us to change, to transform. And so I really think that romantic relationships are, and all relationships, I argue our relationship with our mom is pretty good too, mm -hmm. to transform us, you know, mom and dad, but definitely mom. Mom yeah. is always a delicious area of uh, personal growth opportunities. <laughs> yeah. 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 Let's call them that challenges, but opportunities as yeah. my sales trainer used to say a future shop. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole podcast in itself. I believe that <laughs> the challenges presented there, but it makes me interested in what was it, or was there any moments that you can really remember that sparked your interest in relationship? Or, you know, you allude to this moment where you, you recognize that we weren't actually taught how to love others. So what were some, some moments that you can recall that helped kind of springboard you into this work? The real pivot turning point for me was when I got engaged at 27. Um, up until that point, I'd, I'd say I was sort of living my life kind of blindly. Mm. You know, I was, you know, I didn't really in hindsight feel like I was choosing my life. Of course I was, but I wasn't doing it from a real conscious perspective. You know, I said no to so many opportunities of expansion that were kind of scary, like why didn't I go travel Europe when I was 18? I thought about it. I dreamt about it. And then I went to university instead, mm -hmm. you know, and anything that was like this fear of stepping out of what we're taught. And if you look at globally, there's a very similar message, get married by a certain age and culturally that'll change what age that is. Gender wise, there'll be more pressure and have kids by a certain age. And if you don't do any of those things, you're kind of broken. And if you do some of those things and then you get divorced or break up, then you're also outside of the story. If you don't go do a degree in accounting or medicine or finance, we place all these values in these status positions. You know, I remember as a kid thinking I wanted to be a doctor or, a, you know, whatever it might be. And that's because we're taught that. It's not to say that we don't have natural you know, desires to do certain things. But if we weren't socialized to want status or to want to please our parent or to fit in, what would we choose? You know, I often think that there's a great question I heard once that said, if you didn't know how old you were, how old would you be? And I think that's true of so many things. Mm -hmm. If you, if, if you weren't who the world taught you to be, who would you be? What would you really believe? How would you really live? You know, it's like when someone says, you can't do that. You might do this. This might happen. They're really just speaking their own limitations mm -hmm. into you. And of course, it comes from fear. I don't want you to fail. 
Right. But it's just them imparting the same limitations they've placed on themselves on you. Mm -hmm. And what happens with that is we keep hitting the upper limits that other people give us. And we do this relationally. That's why I bring it up is, you know, we sort of look at where our parents were in terms of the depth of their communication, if they had any. And we look at even like, if you look up your family tree and you've never seen people navigate conflict and build deeper intimacy, how would you know how? Would you even know it's possible? Mm -hmm. You know, and this is true of everyone who joins the relationship. You know, we both are entering with lenses and that's, and, and conditionings and traumas and they're different. And I think a good example of this is we say that most people divorce because of money or discussions on finance. I don't agree with that. I think it's that we divorce or break up because we don't know how to merge two stories mm-hmm. about money. Cause it's not money that breaks us up. It's that we, we have so much emotion connected to it because we are in a relationship with it. Most of us don't even understand that. So to make a long, a very short story, very long, when I got engaged, I really thought I should have felt better than I did. Mm. I had been curious before, like I didn't want to get engaged. Why did I get engaged? I was super anxious and it was met with, I'm afraid of commitment. And I thought, well, fuck, you want emotionally intelligent men. And then the moment I share how I'm emotionally feeling, I'm told I don't actually feel that way. Mm. That pissed me off Mm -hmm. because when I finally started to look up, because this really mattered to me, like this woman is incredible, was incredible. And that was really hard because why didn't I want to get engaged to a really incredible woman? Why didn't I want to live this story that was basically written for all of us? And it's when I started to study, like, how do you know if someone's the one? And that really led me to a lot of questions. And I realized that when you're looking to change your life, some of the worst people to ask are the people who are influenced by your choice, because they will often give unbiased or sorry, they will often give biased advice because of the fear of how it might affect them. And when I wrote about my story on a forum on the internet, That was like the first time I really felt free because these people were strangers. They didn't care what I chose. They Mm -hmm. just care that I found what was true for me. And it was in that, that I, you know, I got asked questions like, you know, if she left you tomorrow, would you be okay? And Mm -hmm. I thought, oh my God, I'd feel relieved. Mm -hmm. And then the question, the other question was, what would it be like to wait for her at your altar or whatever your altar is? And I thought to myself, ah, that just makes me feel anxious. Mm And the last question was the one that really got me. It was, could someone else love her better? And I'd never really thought about it from Mm -hmm. that perspective, but I realized that my own failure to stand in my truth and like choose what was really being called from, which was to leave, was actually not allowing her the love that she was worthy of. And the follow-up question to that is, you know, do you want to, right? Like, if someone else could love them better, are you the one who wants to show up and do that? Because if you don't, someone else will. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to, and I didn't know why. I just knew that I needed to go. And it was when I left that, that I started to see how much momentum I had been caught up in about cultural narratives, about marriage and relationships and mm-hmm. what's right and what's wrong. And what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be in relationship what about your, your role in a relationship? What about my emotionality? I, I started to ask myself questions like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get to this place where I got engaged and I didn't want to, I spent a bunch of money, I hurt someone, and I feel so disconnected from who I actually am. Mm-hmm. 
and that was the beginning of the journey of saying like, why do some relationships last and others not? Why in the moment that I've chosen myself really for the first time at the cost of, of other people's feelings and opinions, why do I feel so connected to myself? And yet I feel so judged and by some people exiled and criticized for my choice Mm. when I feel most free. Why is that the moment that people are not as supportive for me? Mm -hmm. I was blessed because really my closest friends were very supportive, but I get it. You know, it's like a lot of people get afraid that their partner is going to leave them. And so when one person does leave someone in your friendship group, uh, the other people who are afraid will villainize that partner, that person, Mm. which is really fascinating, you know, sort of in hindsight to see, like, oh, yeah, I get that. Like, mm-hmm. now I can understand it. Like, at the time, it felt personal and it felt painful. Oh, yeah. But yeah, that, w- that was really, I think this is true for everybody. You have a moment that kicks you off the train that you're taught to be on. And then all of a sudden, you know, my friend Matt said this to me once. I feel like I'm just standing on the platform watching the train go by. Ooh. And all these people just gathered in it, not asking questions or thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's a moment truly of awakening is when you just start to ask why and what am I here for? Why am I choosing these things? Why do I stay in perpetual states of suffering? Mm -hmm. Why do I stay in relationships that don't serve me? Why am I not showing up in relationship? Why do I sabotage what's good for me? Why do I have these dysfunctional relationships with alcohol, weed, sex, coffee, you know, all the things that numb us really ultimately from the pain of misalignment. You know, if you get into alignment and you claim yourself and your integrity, then you don't really need those things. They become choices rather than vices. They become um, expansive somewhat. I'll be careful with that word. Expansive rather than something that is a form of numbing. Curious about this, though, because I recognize that this is with a lot of healing work done. This is with a lot of relational work, a lot of studying, a lot of death, (laughs) right? Yeah. So this is where you're at now, and these are your perspectives now. I'm so interested in whether or not you were always self-aware. I mean, even throughout this process, you're able to say that you felt connected to yourself, but at the same time, you didn't recognize some of the choices that you were making. So did that self-awareness, was that also a pivot into like, holy shit, I need to connect with myself or I'm actually not as connected to myself? Or were you always self-aware? No, no, I was definitely not. I didn't ask why do I do things till that moment. Mm. I never even thought about it. I just sort of made choices that seemed like the right choice at the time and certainly followed emotional cues sometimes. Uh, I would say I was pretty connected to my feelings and all of those things until my late teens when I went through a breakup. And then I really became quite avoidant. I like closed my heart. I Mm -hmm. dated unavailable people. I became much more into casual relationships because I was just so afraid of depth. And I think I sort of was on autopilot really for like probably six years after that and used alcohol to numb that. You know, I was afraid that people would see how much I was hurting and how sensitive I was and how much that breakup at 19 was like so fucking devastating. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember after it being in probably one of the darkest places I could remember Mm -hmm. and really being just terrified of being loved by someone after that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's at 27 where I really just started to ask questions and I wouldn't get to answers immediately. 
And, you know, I think that's true constantly is we're like always, I used to think it was like peeling an onion, you know, you're like peeling another level and then you're going to get to the core. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying that to my friend, Sherry Salata, I was like, you know, I feel like I peel a layer and I understand it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, fuck, man, it's like same size damn onion. Yeah. And she's like, maybe you should think about it that every time you peel a layer, you actually expand. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's a lot better way. Of I love <laughs> thinking that. About, right. It was, it was such an interest. Like you take up more space, mm-hmm. you become more powerful. And ultimately, I think it's the journey of growing up, like becoming an adult. Hey friends, The Safe Haven will be right back after this quick break. I have a question about the asking of questions though, but I want, I'm going to come back to this because I thought of you the other day, I was in a line at the grocery store and knowing about your heartbreak at 19 years old, I overheard someone in conversation make a comment about, oh, it can't be that bad. Breakups aren't that bad when you're 19. And I immediately was like, oh, Mark Groves. Mm. I can't wait to chat with Mark Groves about this. So if that was someone's opinion or perspective about like, it's just a 19 year old heart. Can you speak to your own personal experience? Because I know that that had that springboard effect into the next couple of years of your life on autopilot. Yeah. And that idea that age is correlated to depth of love or impact of love or heartbreak is, I mean, I think most people listening can attest to that not being true. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember having a breakup in grade nine that the relationship lasted five days and I was <laughs> devastated. And I, I think humans experiencing the fracture of attachment is really challenging on our systems. One, due to a biological process of what a breakup does to us. You know, when they look at the brains of people going through a breakup, um, the same places light up when they think about their partner as cocaine addicts. Um, also the same places as people who have been widowed. So you think about that, how powerful that is. The neurochemical cascade that is meant to have us stay close to other people. That's why loneliness, which was already an epidemic uh, prior to the pandemic, is now uh, certainly uh, a massive super pandemic, is one of uh, a great contributor to morbidity and mortality predictive of a higher rate of mortality, a significant higher rate, um, and close to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, I believe, if I remember the, the data correctly. Either way, I remember listening to a couple of parents at a playground. I was with my friend, and one of the toddlers said to the other one, I love you. Mm-hmm. And the parent said, isn't that funny? Like the parent I didn't know. Isn't that funny? He thinks he loves her. And I thought to myself, like, he does like how can you say that we don't like even that comment alone is like this idea that what we believe about our own emotions we can't trust Mm -hmm. and I mean my breakup at 19 I mean man that was a big one there was a there was betrayal in there it was a very painful experience and when we ended the narratives or the stories that I created about myself were really the stories I told myself about the breakup were really what was most devastating for me because I wasn't conscious of the stories I was creating. And they would linger in my life for years, for years and years, and really determine my relational outcomes without me even knowing. And even what I was drawn to, 
um, or not drawn to, or what I would allow or won't, would it only let, you know, even my ex-fiance, I never really let her love me. And I can see that in hindsight. Uh, the narratives I left with were when I love people, they betray me, they lie to me, they devastate me. Um, when I let people love me, I lose myself. I don't have boundaries. I get crushed. And those were all occurring unconsciously. You know, I didn't know all that was going on. I knew there was pain, but I don't think people really prepare you from a strategic perspective on how to navigate that. You know, that's why I created a breakup course because mm -hmm. when I started to see if you can step into heartbreak with intention, you can actually give birth to the best version of you you've ever seen. And you also have access to this grief. And I think grief is really one of the greatest gateways. Francis Weller talks about that. It's one of the greatest gateways to our soul, you know, and if navigated with intention, oh, you can alchemize that grief into, we talked about the layers. I mean, gosh, the layers that can expand of oneself when you do the beautiful work of assessing your relational past, how you got there, how you showed up, how you're the common denominator, what you need to heal, how you need to fucking change and blow shit up. Mm -hmm. I mean, it. I don't know that there's a more potent vehicle for reclamation than heartbreak. Mm. So beautifully said. Thank you. And when you mentioned Francis Weller, that was one of one of my favorite episodes of your podcast was with uh, him, right? The darkness that he talks about and how some of the most beautiful things in the world, uh, in this universe, on so earth, beautiful. everywhere in the ethers, like happens in pure darkness. It's so true. He is honestly so incredible. Yeah. He's been such a imperative teacher for me. I, I think it's, I wouldn't say it's hard to find. Maybe it is. Men who have really expanded into that elder space who can mm. uh, lead us through. I think that's especially important for men. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, not to say it's not important for women. I just mean we need a male mentors, male elders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So I wanted to come back to the asking questions, seeking answers, and how that journey expanded and unfolded after you'd ended your engagement. That's a pretty huge thing to happen in life. So what did the healing journey for you look like? Where were you finding your answers or where were you seeking answers from and seeking healing? You know, it was a process. I'd say those first, man, the first while I was trying to find answers in the bottom of a pint glass and sometimes in the comfort of the arms of a woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but mm -hmm. unfortunately the answers don't really live there. <laughs> Those are good distractions yeah. to answers. Yeah. You know, there was something about being able to still experience intimacy, but be controlling the depth of that intimacy. I sort of went back to old habits mm -hmm. as I was beginning to study things like the science of romantic relationships. When I was a pharmaceutical rep, I studied, how do you get people to change behavior? How do you get someone to choose one product over another, really a lot of how do I psychologically manipulate? And I mean, that's ultimately what sales is. Let's just call it <laughs> what's true. And I started to see like, if, how do I know so much about relationships and communication? And yet I'm so bad at romantic relationships. Like what is there? Cause it's not a skill set issue. There's something else going on. And that's when I really started to study like why do I feel like I don't love myself because I left a relationship? Why do I feel unloved by other people because I left a relationship? Why does that even matter? 
and also started to look at things like, what does the science say? I really felt like we had been lied to. You know, I remember being really angry. One, for not people not accepting how I fucking felt. That pissed me off. And the second part was that I hadn't been paying attention to all the stories that ended in divorce. Mm-hmm. You know, I really thought all marriages, oh, I'll just be happy. You know, we'll get married and we'll have kids and I'll be happy forever because everyone's happy forever. And when I got out of that, I was like, no one's fucking happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no marriages last. <laughs> marriage is bullshit. And I started to study marriage as a construct, as a relational structure. I didn't believe in marriage, really. I remember my next partner, I was 31 when we dated. So four years later, I was single for four years, really dated on and off, but was terrified of people loving me. Oh my God. I was, I would run from Mm. a good woman, um, often after we made out, which wasn't great. (laughs) I think if the term avoidant was even really understood, then I would have had that. I also think if the term, which just went viral for avoidant people, but it's true sometimes would have been narcissist too. Mm. You know, because I was so scared of connection, but I would always be transparent about how I felt. I'd always dance in the language, you know, um, which of avoidant people often do. That's really the strategy is to control the depth, to let people love you till the moment that you have capacity, till your story that is still living in your subconscious of heartbreak and pain and trauma, maybe betrayal till you touch the edges of it. And then you have to sprint away Mm -hmm. where anxious people really just cling tighter. Mm -hmm. You know, they cling tighter, both are strategies to avoid pain. Mm -hmm. Um, but they ultimately create pain. You know, that idea hurt people, hurt people. It would be that, you know, that studying of like, why do some relationships last and others not? Why do we buy into this story? Why do we think marriage works? Even though there's plenty of evidence to say it doesn't And it took me actually a while to believe in love again, because I remember saying to that partner, I don't believe in marriage, which would be, that is like the most avoidant thing to say to a partner who's entering a relationship with you. I don't believe in commitment. You know, (laughs) I don't believe in, in this being long-term or, or maybe celebrating it because I didn't really believe, I, I think of a quote from Osho where he said, why is there the need for marriage? It's like painting a red rose red or putting legs on a snake. Um, there's no need for the government. There must be some fear that your love is not real. Mm. And I thought about that a lot. I read that book called um, Love, Freedom, and Aloneness by Osho, one of the best books I've ever read. And I know we try to cancel him because of his cult, but you know, don't kill the messenger. He was still a good writer, still had good messages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. it's that journey of understanding that, of of really seeing now, you know, I'm like, well, marriage is really the celebration of what's already sacred. It doesn't become more sacred. Although maybe there are, there is an argument that the ceremony itself does sort of, um, stamp it with some sacredness. Mm -hmm. Okay. You just said something that made me think of your perspectives and the vocabulary that you use around this. I love just about how marriages typically in a heteronormative situation or marriage have a very codependent framework to them and that historically that that has been again in a heteronormative relationship very much codependent or based on codependency and I think that as the word codependent codependency is more understood or is being spoken about people are like oh my god yeah (laughs) I'm codependent yeah right people are totally and there's this huge unveiling I know even for myself that's been a lot of the work that I've been doing 
over the last couple of years is understanding codependency to the core, understanding my own patterns, and then actively and intentionally trying to change them. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about marriage, I think that it is so codependent or historically has been so codependent. So if you're able to elaborate a little bit on that, I have a secondary question, but I'll let you go for that there. Well, I mean, originally the history of marriage was, and this is based on the work by Stephanie Coons, uh, which was one of the first books I read after my engagement ended. Mm. It's called uh, Marriage, a History. It's a beautiful book. It really opens your eyes to where marriage came from and what it means. And I mean, ultimately the role of marriage is to get more in-laws. It was so that we could travel on bigger areas of land. We could share resources with the tribe next door. We might marry the daughter or the son from the tribe next door. And so really the history of marriage was not really about love. It was about connectedness Mm -hmm. and community, which are all really important things. But I'd say that what we want from marriage today is so different, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and also what we can bring to marriage is very different. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, much like everything in society, it changes and relationally things change when, you know, things like rapid changes in, in power division, you know, like the birth control pill was very imperative to power changes, the workplace having, you know, I remember it's Helen Fisher who talks about how we say that women are entering the workforce at greater numbers. And she said, really, they're returning to it because women were actually the ones would forage berries and actually bring most of the, Mm -hmm. uh, bring in a lot of the food. Mm -hmm. And I think all these things are so interesting to study because I think there was a line when relationships were interdependent and the tribe helps raise the children. That's still true in a lot of indigenous communities. And there was this transition and theoretically, you know, some of the theories is that it's due to the agricultural revolution that when we used to move with a tribe through places, now we would own our own land. And then when we owned our own land, we didn't want our partner female then possibly procreating with someone else. Why would we want to give our resources to someone else's kid? Mm-hmm. And as soon as you could own land, then what happened is you own, you could own people. And so marriage was also a way to keep people who were wealthy in statuses of wealth and people who were poor, poor. This is all again, more of Stephanie's work, which is so cool. I'd love Everyone should check it out. And that, that like, if you think about even just the previous 50, 70 years of relationship. You look at the ads from the 1950s. Anyone can look up ads from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. They're fucking disgusting. Mm. I mean, it's a hard, like there's ones where women are a rug and the man's standing on it where um, there's one I remember specifically, but gosh, look up any of them. They're awful. And there's one that says how to train your wife in five easy steps. Mm. And I think about, imagine if you're like a two-year-old looking at mm-hmm. that on your coffee table or a five-year-old, that that message that it sends mm-hmm. is so, or a woman, a, a, a little boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about it is, you know, when you think about relationships in their most recent history, the ones that we could look up the family tree kind of immediately, most of them involved self-abandonment. They involved the woman not pursuing her dreams or passions. Mm-hmm and being the caretaker of the home. And again, not shaming that, that can be a self choosing thing too. However, it also, there wasn't this opportunity to pursue what we really wanted to do. Even for women to vote, like you think about this, this is all to us today, like 
fucking crazy. Mm. But that was just normal then. And so you have that contributing and you have men who are completely disconnected from their emotionality and not allowed to actually feel anything other than maybe moderate happiness and content and also aggression. You know, those are two really socially acceptable behaviors. Those aren't really, I mean, aggression isn't really helpful for a relationship. And so you have both these people in relationship. You weren't even allowed to legally get divorced unless it was approved by the court until 1967, I believe it is, in Canada. And that's when the Divorce Act came in and you had to be separated for three years before they approved it. And it wasn't until 1986 that you... I mean, you got to think of all the confounding factors in 67. You've got the sexual revolution, the feminist revolution. So you have quite a few confounding factors that are contributing to this. Mm -hmm. And then in 86, they changed it from three years to one year. And so divorces went way up because people were like, well, fuck, I can hack one year. That's easy. Okay, I'm Mm -hmm. out. But you saw all these, and we can still look back in recent years, where we may have observed our mothers be devastated in those breakups because they didn't have their own money. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have sovereignty and individuality. Um, And really a lot of the only ways that men knew how to keep a woman was to be powerful, was to have money, was, and those things are still true. You still see that all the time on Instagram, just like for women, they're encouraged to be, to exhibit displays of fertility, shiny hair, big lips, big butts, you know, all the things, big boobs, These are all from an evolutionary perspective, Mm -hmm. things that make a partner more desirable. So I think we're in this interesting place where we're like still battling with our biology and evolutionarily what we might be pulled towards and realizing like even in the marriage constructs, you know, we, you were mentioning this before that people in their vows say till death do us part. Mm -hmm. And I just always think of like, if you were 19 living in a small town in Saskatchewan, And all of a sudden you moved with your marriage partner and you got married maybe because you're a Jehovah's witness or Christian or whatever your religious messaging, which is likely heavily intertwined with your cultural messaging Mm -hmm. that you got married because you felt like you were supposed to, you're not even sure you really liked the person or maybe you got married just so you could bang because you weren't allowed to bang outside of marriage, Mm -hmm. you know? So all of a sudden you're like, now 29 living in a city and you're like, holy shit, there's all these other options. And people are like into talking about these things. And like, Mm -hmm. I'm not fucking crazy. And I mean, of course your paradigm is going to be completely shattered Mm -hmm. and you're going to be invited to step out of self-abandonment, whatever that might mean. That could just mean self-expression. It doesn't mean leaving the relationship, but in that, all of that to say, that really what we inherited was these relationships where we are not encouraged to be our authentic selves, but to actually put the longevity of the relationship ahead of everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I said this recently on my Instagram that if you think your only job in marriage is to stay with your partner, or that's the most important thing, then what that relationship will require of you is the same smallness as the commitment. Mm. Um, And that, when you think about it, that's most, a lot of people's fears, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what keeps us in relationship for the most part is the shame associated with leaving Mm -hmm. because we think till death do us part. And I really think it's like, as I said earlier, it's like what death, like the death of the socialized part of you who was taught to live this story or your mortal death. And 
I think there's something beautiful, of course, about holding the hand of someone through transformations and pains and all those things. Those are all really important to relationships. They're important because the ultimate question we ask ourselves, which really is a great sense of the health of a relationship is, if I needed you, would you be there for me? And so, of course, the oppositional way we can get, which I did after my engagement ended, instead of, I don't know how to hold on to me and be in a relationship, right? Which is most of us. We don't know how to have boundaries and be in love. We don't know how to have an identity and a passion and a dream and be in a relationship with someone else. We think we have to give those things away. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean compromise can't be there, but compromise should never feel like loss. It should feel like it strengthens the relationship. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't be sad about it, but in another way, you also feel like something was enriched. Um, And it's, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's in this space now where we can say, can this relationship actually be the birthplace of more of me, mm-hmm. you know, which is very different. Right. And the choosing, you've talked a lot about the choosing to be in relationship. A relationship should not be a prison. Right. And for most people, they actually can't tell the truth. They're not allowed to say that they want to be done or they miss that person or how that person acts hurts them or they're afraid of being loved. I mean, really, if the relationship can't hold what is your truth and it's going to break because of it, I mean, it's not meant to be, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. but very often the things that will break our relationship are actually the things that deepen them, which is the irony. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't say that thing because we're afraid our relationship will end because so many things are tied to endings of relationships, not seeing that that thing actually is the birthplace of whatever, the deepening of relationship, the first time in your whole family tree where someone actually broke through the upper fucking limit Mm. that's been placed on the emotionality of men or the self-expression of women or even just the expression of wanting to be whoever you want to be regardless of gender. Mm. Yeah, stamp that. Like stamp it, Noah Racy's. I like that. I haven't heard that in a while. (laughs) Okay. So I've got my three safe haven style questions for you. You ready? Let's do them. Yeah. What are you most proud of? Hmm. I think my ability to just live out loud. Mm. To like continue to sort of touch the edge of what it means to be vulnerable or open or to share my own transformation. Uh, mostly publicly, you know. Mm -hmm. What would you like to be known for? Oh, man. I think for being a bridge of dialogue and communication. And um, Francis Weller has a great line where he says, we spend most of our lives seeking belonging. At some point, we have to become a place of welcome. Mm. And I really hope that that is how people experience uh, my work. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? Hmm. These are good questions. I mean, to claim oneself, to at least enter the journey of discovering who you actually are below all the conditioning. I don't know that there's anything more powerful and transformative for relationships, but just for life of like, what was I taught versus who am I? And (laughs) that's a, I think just a fun adventure anyway, it's filled with grief and joy and possibility. Mm. Just when we think, you know, there's that none of it makes sense and we don't know the way out. I think just claiming that 
somehow just a path opens up. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for having me. Friends, thank you so much for listening. Remember that we're just finishing up part one of two of these episodes with Mark, so be sure to check out the next episode after this one to hear where we go next. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform, and I am committed to creating a brave and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us at the Safe Haven Podcast so we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow. Be sure to check out the show note links for all of the places you can find Mark. And for more great podcasts, check out FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com and I will talk to you very soon in the next episode of part two with Mark Groves. <laughs>